0: Life is a blank canvas and you paint your own story. I'm Lee Rogers and welcome to The Blank Canvas. I'm going to be chatting with the trailblazers, artists, thought leaders, athletes, the entrepreneurs and creators, incredible individuals who inspire us to live large. From one man in a truck to a sophisticated multinational operation, Lindsay Fox isn't your average truckie. In 1956, Melbourne hosted the Olympic Games, and in that same year, -year 19-year-old Lindsay Fox purchased his first truck for 400 pounds. With his first set of wheels, he began carting coal in winter and soft drinks in summer. He purchased his second truck the following year, and the now iconic slogan, ''You are passing another Fox'' was born. In 1958, a contract with the soft drink manufacturer Schweppes saw him expand his fleet to 10 trucks and hang up his boots from playing AFL for St Kilda to devote himself to the business. More than 60 years later, Linfox Fox has grown to become Asia Pacific's largest privately owned logistics company, involving more than 24,000 people across 12 countries with more than 5,000 vehicles, operating 3.8 million square meters of warehousing with 3 billion annual revenue. Sounds like a fairy tale from truckie to billionaire entrepreneur, but the trucking biz is no picnic. Lindsay's known as being a tough guy, but loyal and true to his word. He's also a big-hearted bloke, and his philanthropic work is legendary. Most of it, I might add, is done on the quiet without seeking self-congratulatory PR. Plenty of milestones in this bloke's life, too many to mention, but a few highlights, being awarded a Companion of the Order of Australia in 2008, and his family, He and his wife, Paula, have been married for 62 years and have six kids and 14 grandchildren. Gives me great pleasure to welcome to the Blank Canvas, Lindsay Fox. Good morning, Lindsay.
1: How are you this morning?
0: I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for making the time. We sort of had a few... uh, starts last year due to COVID, we'd sort of booked in a few times and then lockdowns occurred and we were postponing right through the year. So it's a pleasure to finally uh, get started, sit in front of you. The first time I met you was, I think it was the 100th or the 101st anniversary of Luna Park. And I was there with my wife, Kate. Yep. And it was a real pleasure to watch the joy that you got out of such an event And it kind of reminded me of my own youth. I grew up in Sydney and obviously there's a Luna Park up there, which for those that don't know, it's an amusement park. As a kid, I remember thinking, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to go to Luna Park every weekend. It was like one of the goals of growing up. And then, you know, once you grow up, I no longer had the interest to do that. But I really enjoyed watching the joy you got from it. And clearly that youthful dream never went away. And later in life... When you are able to, you bought Luna Park, restored it and, and have been able to provide it for younger generations.
1: Lunar Park was something special as a kid. At eight or nine years of age was probably the first time I went there. and I, I was a regular attendee from there on in. Right through my life, I continually went to Lunar Park and saw the satisfaction of my kids wanting to go on the ghost train and the river caves and the, the Giggle Palace. The smell of waffles as you walk in the opening of the building, the Penny Arcade on the right-hand side, the ghost train, and, of course, the Big Dipper. They're all special events, and it was a great novelty. It was a, a hell of a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. That's wonderful. Through your life, you seem to have kept your youthful enthusiasm and, uh, you know, to this day, you're creating wonderful adventures and events for yourself and your family with that, like I say, youthful enthusiasm. It's beautiful to watch. Well, life
1: is short. Never postpone enjoyment. Get out and do things and enjoy doing them. Enjoyed the aspect of caring and sharing. And more specifically, I got more satisfaction out of giving than receiving. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's beautiful. Now, you've had a really interesting journey in business. It started with one truck. It's an extraordinary
1: story. I read that you bought your first truck for £400. Yeah, I bought my first truck from a wrecker called Ev Tim's in Richmond, And I convinced them to sell it to me on four £100 quarterly payments. And that was the start of it all. Years later, I spoke to the son of the guy that I dealt with, and he said, we should have taken the stock in your company instead of taking the money.
0: Yeah, that's for sure. Wow, that's amazing. Did you have any kind of grand vision of that at that time of having a whole fleet of trucks?
1: No, No. my father was a truck driver. That's where the initiative came from. And then in the early days, we carted coke, coal, then it graduated into general cartage. But each and every one of those people that we dealt with, uh, we're now talking 60 odd years ago, a fella called Keith right Brighton Case, we used to cart all his boxes for him. And then it went to Schweppes, then BP, and then Coca-Cola, and then Coles on one truck on a three-month trial, then Woolworths, Dunlop, they all came in. They all used to run their own trucks, but I convinced them there was a better way and they're still our customers today.
0: Wow, incredible. How long were you actually on the tools, driving the truck, doing the long freight trips?
1: Probably just the first four years. After that, I realised for £20 a week, that's all I was worth. And uh, I stepped aside when we had about four trucks and started looking for work. And then it just kept on going from there.
0: Was it difficult scaling the business or it literally was just like a new client, let's make sure we service them and they keep coming back?
1: I've always believed in the, the philosophy, if we don't look after our customers, someone else will. And as a result of that, I looked after all my customers and my customers in turn looked after me.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful. So obviously trucking and logistics, uh, these are big businesses, often tough men. You're dealing with the unions, you've wharfs, cartage, all of that. Obviously we're not in America and you've got the Teamsters and mafia criminal activities. Have you encountered that here and if so, how did you deal with that and keep your... Clearly, your integrity intact to have a business this long and have the reputation you have. You, you must have managed it well if you did encounter it.
1: Well, the first situation with the union was when I started cutting, heating off a of VP and a man called Mark Windrum was the secretary of the TWU in Victoria. And he said, Lindsay, you'll have to pay oil stores award if you want to do that operation. You'll have to become a member. And that time, I think I had about eight trucks. So I became a member of the TWU. When I didn't come. All my workers had to be members of the TWU. And that was the start. Then progressively, that same situation prevailed in each of the states we went to. But out of that, I came across Bill Kelty and Simon Crean at the ACTU. They kept on asking for more money and I kept on asking for less. But Bill Kelty, after 40 odd years, it's one of my best friends. And Simon Crane is also one of my best friends and sits on my board. As does Bill Kelty. And out of the hardships of negotiation, trust became a very strong point. And the trust and integrity between ourselves and the union was our word. If we said we'd do something, we did it. Kelty and myself introduced superannuation six years before it was brought into play.
0: Wow. Wow, that's impressive. I mean, one of the interesting things about you, it hasn't really mattered which political party, left, right, whatever has been in. You you seem to have worked well with them and have had their support and had their respect, you know, over many, many years, you've seen many governments come and go. What's the trick to doing that? Is it loyalty and integrity? Well,
1: when the the Republic debate was on, and it was my turn to speak in the House of Reps in Canberra, I said, Labor think I'm liberal, liberal think I'm Labor, Catholics think I'm Protestant, Protestants think I'm a Catholic, and the local rabbi delivers me mozza. What am I? I'm an Australian. And the aspect of all of the elements I'm currently talking about is you can't do wrongdoing right. If you're doing the right thing, there's no real issues. And I've found that right throughout dealing with the politics on both sides. While they might be fighting, they're really supposed to be looking after the interests of Australia more so than their political parties. We should have bipartisanship where... Everything they do, while they might have conflict, they need to work out collectively behind closed doors what needs to be done. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan uh, were the best probably example that I know of in my lifetime. Tip O'Neill was the Speaker of the House and Ronald Reagan was the president. So after a hard day in the House, Tip O'Neill would come to the president's door Mr President, is the bar open? They then open up a bottle of scotch and resolve all the issues that couldn't be resolved with all of the people sitting in the house. That's what we should be doing in Australia, because we've only got 25 million. I grew up starting at, I think, about 6 million. But today we've got more people in government. We have more advisers to all of those political arenas today. And uh, when I first started, if I want to see a minister, there was only me and the minister, not the advisor or the secretary. But today, some of the politicians have got 10, 20 advisors. Uh, I've got no advisors. And I employ 37,000 people in 12 countries.
0: Wow. That's incredible. Good point. I agree with you. The government should, you know, be for the people. It should be the overarching kind of goal, shouldn't it? Uh, the,
1: The real key is what should be done in the interests of the country. Yeah. That's the prime job of a politician who gets paid by the people. Yeah. Obligations to the policy of the particular political party But collectively, they need to work in the interests of the country. We pay our politicians a lot of money. In totality, I think they should have a scenario where politicians are paid on the same basis as a professional in business and have the people that have that responsibility. You don't have to have all the numbers.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. Social media seems to have made it, very difficult for governments and politicians because people are able to sort of post anything they like and generate a lot of support and a lot of talk very quickly. What are your thoughts on social media? I I don't have any part of it. I don't believe in it. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, well, our daughter's 17 and it's a real challenge with kids growing up in this environment. I look back and I'm kind of thankful it wasn't around when I was growing up and we would, you know, after school, we were up in the park Hitting a cricket ball, kicking the footy and skateboarding and it was just our attention was out. It was making friends. It wasn't interiorised and introverted and in our mind and on the phone. So it's a challenging time, isn't it? It's a challenging time but
1: uh, if you haven't got a challenge and there's no mountains to climb, you're flat. Australia is the greatest country in the world and we should climb at every opportunity. When I played football at St Kilda, the words I remember clearly, he who hesitates is lost, was one. And number two was the aspect of a champion team will beat a team of champions. Just those simple applications should be applicable to people right throughout the country. If we work together, there's nothing we can't do. Totally agree,
0: we're blessed in this country no doubt about it. And I agree with you on the barriers, like the greatest enjoyment comes from overcoming barriers and going, you know, I did that. Whether it's a footy match, whether it's a goal of winning a job, whatever it is, that's the, the joy of living really, isn't it?
1: I've tried to do it all my life.
0: You definitely have. Mate, that's incredible. Did you say 36,000 employees?
1: Yes, in 12 countries.
0: That is incredible. If you've kind of extrapolate that over your whole lifetime, that's an extraordinary number of jobs and food on the table that you've delivered for people. That must give you great satisfaction.
1: Well, if when I bought my first truck, I thought that that's where we'd be at this particular time. uh, The old fashioned aspect of saying, you must be dreaming, would have been correct. It's
0: incredible. In the business, I mean, you're probably good at most parts of it, but like anyone, we all have our strengths and weaknesses, so you've probably surrounded yourself with great people, particularly in areas that aren't your strongest suit. What's your approach been to staff culture and building a team and the kind of people you hire and how you've retained them?
1: Well, the first thing you've got to do is self-analysis, is what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses? and employ people that are twice as good as you in your areas of weakness, then all of a sudden you're a lot stronger. Being a family man, all of my children run the business today. They're the key players with the executives in our team. Uh, Jesus Christ had 12 disciples. One was a Judas. So caveat emptor, buyer beware. Make sure that all of the people are all on the one team and one person. If he doesn't fit into the team, replace him.
0: Right. Sounds good. In this day and age, laying someone off or replacing them is often easier said than done with unfair dismissal laws, etc. How have you managed to you know, build this incredible business with this number of staff and how do you deal with that?
1: You're better off talking to somebody that's on our payroll and ask them so that you get a straightforward and honest answer. My approach has always been you do the good job, you're there for life. If you're loyal and committed, you're there for life. If you're not good enough to get to the top job, you've got to realise that where you are is where you're staying. But if you're ambitious and you work hard, there's no reason you can't get to the top. Makes sense. You mentioned your family. You've got a wonderful
0: family and I've I've met a few of your children over the years and they're wonderful people. So that must be a great source of pride as well, obviously.
1: Well, life is a continual factor. My parents, my mother and father, always cared and shared for people that had less than they did. We lived in a little 15-foot frontage house where my father paid a pound a week rent and he made £4.10 or $9 a week as a truck driver. And all the things he did for other people were quite incredible. Quite often I'd get up ready to go to school and in front of the little fireplace in a little room about 12 foot by 9 foot there was a fire burning and two strangers didn't know who they were but it was raining and my father took them off the street because they had nowhere to go. The joy of all of these things, the things that my parents did, I've done. And now my children are doing it. And even the grandchildren now are following suit without being told. It's part of the culture of our family. That's lovely.
0: Yeah, it's incredible how much change you've seen through your time. That's that's a wonderful thing. Did you want your kids to move into the business with you always or was there a lot of pressure for that or they just reached for it of their own accord?
1: No, they're always interested in coming right. into the business. Right. Each of them have excelled, they're doing a great job. Yeah. It's a great team and they've got great camaraderie uh, right throughout the workforce. Right. It's a true family business. Yeah, that's great. You left school
0: at a young age. I don't know. I I I was was. lucky. I was
1: an academic failure. (laughs) I left school at I think about sixteen. I did two years in form two, a year and a half in year three, and I said academia is not going to be for me. So I went out convinced uh, uh, a man to sell me a truck on quarterly payments. On top of that, the rest just took its own place.
0: Yeah. Wow. It's amazing in these conversations I've been having with people on the podcast it's amazing how many successful people and trailblazers left school early and weren't academics and I guess they thought outside the box and they just went out and worked and they found a path and developed a work ethic it's like more of them left school early that certainly went on to you know university education what are your thoughts on those two approaches
1: I would say at the moment of the supposedly top 20 rich people in Australia, 14 of them never graduated, but they learnt their skills and honed in on them by practical experience. Yeah. You take the difference in you being a lover from the first time you made love, you became better as you progressed down the line. Works exactly the same.
0: You're absolutely right. And that's how I justified multiple partners. You know, it was good experience, hard-earned. <laughs> Only way to travel. <laughs> Talking of lovers, um, my wife, who you know, we've been together 30 years, and I know you and Paula, your wife, have been together
1: over 60. 62. 62. Well, bravo to you It's two. even longer than that because she was 15 and I was 16 when we first met. Wow. We had to wait till she turned 21 before we got married. We had six kids in seven years. Wow. She was a good Catholic and I was a careless Protestant.
0: <laughs> That's a wonderful achievement. Any tips on
1: maintaining
0: a, a relationship and a marriage that long?
1: Simple. Yes, dear. What a great idea.
0: I <laughs> uh, love it. That's classic. Well, I guess you're. Um, You're a good communicator. I guess you just, uh, you wouldn't beat around the bush with issues and things as they come up and I
1: guess you'd just communicate and just work it through by the sound of it. There's no alternative. If you listen to he says, she says, they say, you've got a problem. If you've got an issue with a person, tell them. It's over and done with them. But don't get caught up in what he says or believe what somebody else says. You've got to find out for yourself. You don't like somebody, tell them you don't like them.
0: Good advice. I was wanted to ask you segue to back to trucking and driving. When I go on a long trip, go on a road trip, I'm always amazed at how truck drivers can drive for as long as they do without falling asleep and why there isn't more accidents. How did you back in the day when you were driving and deal with that? Obviously, you could pull over and you'd have a nap, but often the pressure to deliver the goods in a certain time is such that you can't do that. Obviously, there's drugs, whatever, but there's no future in that either. So how did you deal with that and how do you help support your staff to this day?
1: Okay. When I was driving, whenever you were tired, you'd wind down your windows, put your arm outside the car or the truck and keep driving and pull up and have a break probably halfway along the route that you were going to and you were okay. I never had any alcohol. I think I had my first glass of wine. When I was 37, I've never had a cigarette in my life and I hardly drink any wine. But over the last four or five years, I uh, enjoy a whiskey with my sons and my friends. Gotcha. That makes sense.
0: Every entrepreneur and business owner encounters, we talked about the barriers earlier, but there's often these forks in the road or these times where you almost have to put it all on the line to maybe go to the next level and expand. Could you share a few times where that took place and how you navigated through that?
1: Well, in the early days, a Commonwealth bank were my bankers, a fellow called Joe Lonigan at the branch in Paran. Uh, I think I had an overdraft facility of 30,000 pounds. And if I was going over that, I'd call on Joe and say, Joe, uh, I've got a bit of a hiccup at the moment. We'd go and have lunch. And Joe's boss was a man called Crow. And if he had asked Crow, Crow wouldn't have done anything. But Joe wrote a note back to Crow and said, I've extended Lindsay Fox's facility by another 10,000 pound. So it all came back to people. Over the last few years, I bought a company and it was about $261 million. Right. We bought Maine Nicholas and uh, we were dealing with a, an American company to do a joint venture. They pulled out on the Sunday. We went and knocked on the door of the ANZ Bank. John McFarlane was the chief executive. We committed to sell some properties Edgar was the finance director at the time. He said, we'll never get it through the credit committee in time. John McFarlane said, come back by 10 o'clock and we'll give you an answer. 10 o'clock he gave us the answer, go ahead. John McFarlane cleared that. Within three hours, we had the 261 million. It's people, trust, it's integrity, it's loyalty. They're the ingredients.
0: Yeah, makes sense.
1: Obviously the trucking part was
0: the initial part of the business and then as it's grown, logistics and big warehouses with product and you delivering it to the places has become kind of, I I guess, probably a bigger part of the business and then even owning the land and those factories and then renting them to your clients, I guess, is a big part of the business. Was that the bright idea that you had that really expanded the company back in the day or is trucking
1: the actual trucking being the core business? In 1965, Coles wanted a warehouse to store pallets and do, you know, pallet deliveries to the stores. So we built a 110,000-square-foot warehouse for them at Chesterville Road, Morabin. And from that warehouse, we've now probably built another 20 or 30 warehouses for the customers to look after the supply chain. So it's all under our control.
0: Wow. Coles, Meyer, I mean, you said earlier, they've been with you that whole time. That's extraordinary. But you also have the other main supermarket chain, Woolworths as well, I believe, don't you? How the hell did you manage that?
1: Well, you look at uh, every table you sit down to to have a meal. There is one shaker called pepper and there's one shaker called salt. Those two are never mixed together. Our integrity and loyalty has been that there's been no communication about what salt does or what pepper does and the customers are fully aware of that. And those two people, while they're competitors, they know in the case of their logistics, the arrangements are kept in-house between them and ourselves. Very, very impressive. And both of them now, one's 55 years and one's 60 years old with us as customers. Wow, very impressive. Tell me about doing a deal
0: you are known as being tough but fair. Could you give us an insight into how
1: you might do a deal for one of these guys? Well, firstly, you've got to make a profit. And normally the people today in big business, that know, are fully aware of their costs. Now, we believe that we buy the trucks cheaper. We believe that we buy the fuel cheaper. We buy the tyres cheaper. The labour is a fixed cost. But our control mechanisms are probably the best in the country or, to that end, maybe the best in the world. And we convince our customer that, in most cases, if they're a failed retailer, they finish up in the warehouse or a side issue and they're not up to speed with it. When you've made your money and you started at the bottom, you have a good appreciation of what needs to be done and how it needs to be done how to circumnavigate the issues with the industrial side. They're all programs that we've done now for over 60 years. Gotcha.
0: Talking of the wharves and unions and the logistics on wharves and all that stuff, is that an area that you
1: explored to sort of getting more involved? No, we've never worked on the waterfront. It's a specialty area. We've stuck to our knitting with what we know and what we do well with a proven track record. The same thing is applicable right across everything that we do. If you've got a problem with your teeth, you don't go to the doctor. If you've got a problem with your gut, you don't go to the dentist. These days, retailers are realising what they do. What they do is what they buy a product for, what they can sell it for and what the locked-in costs are. Of processing the point A to point B. Lock all of those up and you've got a successful retailer.
0: Gotcha. When you were building the business and you were training your executives and your staff and you were laying all this out, I guess writing up hats for staff as far as, you know, this is what you do, you do blah, blah and blah, and when this happens you do blah, was that a strength of yours where no, you no, laid that no, stuff no. out?
1: The, this is where we bring the specialists in gotcha that are stronger in our area of weakness we have people that are trained to do that in our company we do drug tests we have strict rules on cleanliness of the vehicle tidiness of the operator and no breaking of the laws the police use us as a benchmark on the highways of australia
0: got it You are talking about, you know, play to your strengths and clearly you're a leader in Australia. At what point did you decide to branch out internationally and, as it's turned out, very successfully, but was there a point there where you thought, well, you know what, that's out of our comfort zone and we should just, you know, stick to Australia or how did that expansion occur?
1: Well, pretty much on the same way we went from Melbourne to Sydney to Brisbane to Perth to South Australia to Queensland. We started, I think, in Malaysia. From there, we went to uh, Thailand, Indonesia, Laos, and oh, probably another six other countries. We had our people that were skilled and trained with us, and we sent them into the field. And they looked after it. Very
0: impressive. Let's move on to your philanthropic work because you've helped a lot of people along the way in that space. Something I thought of as I was driving in, I call my wife the down-to-earth diva and I thought, you're the down-to-earth billionaire. You've helped a tremendous number of people. Could you share your philosophy on that area? Very simple. You
1: can't go broke by
0: giving. I like that. That's great. In particular, I admire your work with veterans and you work on the 100-year celebration of the end of World War I was really impressive. Could you share a little
1: about that? Yeah, well, they were celebrating the ANZAC and most of the big institution. I finished up the man chasing the money for it. And I got all the banks and all the major companies to give $10 million apiece, and then the rest of it just followed through. And we finished up with about 240 odd million, dollars, and the support from the public was terrific.
0: And you went to, I believe, it wasn't just those big organisations, you went to a lot of other wealthy Australians and asked for a million each from them. Is that right? Uh, something like that. Something like that. Yeah, well, I guess if you add it up to, what <laughs> was it, 260, there was some more in there. And look, it's not like you do this and then write a press release and send it out to media to, you know, glow and in the shower of praise, a lot of this work you do and
1: you don't don't, Uh, don't to tell anyone about it. We don't need to do any of those things. When you give, you shouldn't expect anything back in return. You give because you believe in what you're doing. And that's been my philosophy all my life. And it was my father's philosophy as well. And he never had much money. So, it's not about how much money you got. Money is nothing more than a, a signature for job satisfaction. Nothing more.
0: Gotcha. How have you managed raising your kids? They've all seemed to have
1: their heads screwed on well. Been explain, coming... explain to them very simply that from little acorns, oak trees grow. Start small and grow big. How do you make a small fortune? Start with a big one.
0: Right, gotcha. Yeah, because often the children are, you know, coming from
1: wealthy people. They
0: They don't pretend to be what they're not. Right. And I guess you kept them busy and ensured that they built a work ethic at a young age, I'm guessing. Everything
1: about my kids is very basic.
0: Tell me about some of your birthday celebrations. You've had some pretty cool (laughs) birthday parties. Um, Would you like to share how you exchange with your friends?
1: It's a time to celebrate when you achieve another birthday. Uh, There's nothing better than celebrating it with your friends. I'm very fortunate that I have a lot of friends all over the world. And on my recent birthday of 84, I had something like 260 phone calls from all over the world. And that in itself shows you the spread of relationships that I have that are not just one way, they're two ways. But out of their knowledge of my birthday, 260 phone calls came through on my birthday.
0: Let's talk about footy briefly because I know you're a passionate footy player. You played for St Kilda, yep. AFL, or it was probably VFL back then, was it? It was VFL. Yeah, and that's impressive in itself. Was that something you ever considered, you know, continuing or was it kind of just a fun camaraderie, the challenge and then not something you considered no, as a no, profession? It,
1: it was a challenge. Uh, as an 18-year-old, I played in what was known as the third 18. And that was the under-19 competition. After the third 18, I went up to the Ballarat League. Alan Killigrew was the coach. He said, you need to get into a, a bigger field. So I played two years in the under-19, then played a season up in the Ballarat League, then came back and played at St Kilda for three years. Got one Brownlow medal vote and played 20 games.
0: Wow, that's cool. Clearly, you like to help people. Have you ever felt you have had a particular purpose or calling?
1: And if so, what is it? No, no. I've just acted spontaneously as I do with everything.
0: There must have been some pretty stressful situations and moments along the way, building the business and in family. How have you dealt with stress over the years? Uh, Well, the
1: more stress that you get and i overcome, the stronger you become. So certainly there were lots of stressful moments and everything I've ever done in those formative years, my house was on the line. So I had every reason not to fail.
0: It's been a pretty challenging year or two with COVID. Some businesses have boomed and others have struggled. I'm guessing, you know, delivery and logistics and some of those have benefited greatly. How has it affected you over the last year or so?
1: Well, everything that we do is back to consumer requirement on a daily basis. Food, fuel, milk. Our business has gone through the the epidemic quite well. In fact, we got the job of carrying out all the products for the vaccinations in Queensland, New South Wales, Canberra. The rest were done by an overseas company, who had a contract with Visor.
0: Gotcha. Any advice for companies that have struggled and I guess, you know, people that are um, looking at a career change at this time, other than, you know, roll up your sleeves and get busy doing something and see what you can build?
1: The first thing you ought to do is say, if you think you can or you think you can't, adopt that attitude. If you believe you can get through it, fight and get through it. If you don't, look at a simple way out and drop your aspirations of being highly successful. Gotcha. And I don't encourage anyone to do that. You make a plateau, that should be where you build from, not where you decrease.
0: Gotcha. What do you think of driverless cars and will there be driverless trucks and is that something that you plan for and are
1: exploring? No, no, I don't think we'll see driverless trucks. There are driverless trucks in quarries and mines. Right. They're on a set course and there are no people about. People get killed with drivers. There'd be a lot more people killed with driverless equipment.
0: Yeah, I would think so too. It's extraordinary the number of things you've done and you've achieved. I mean, do you
1: sleep much? Like what's a, what's a day look like for you? I <laughs> uh, get up probably at six 6.30 in the morning. You had to sleep about 10, 10.30 at night. Right. I wake up during the night probably once and then get back to sleep and everything is normal again.
0: Okay. Power all day. Talking of the future and kids, do you think it's harder for kids today than it was back in your generation or it just has different challenges?
1: The kids it's- today are more educated. The higher education is required for survival today. Wasn't prevalent. If you got to the eighth grade, which was Form Two, you'd go out and either get a job as a carpenter, or an electrician, or bricklayer. If you wanted to go to get a job at the Board of Works, you had to go to the equivalent of uh, the tenth grade or intermediate, as it was called. If you want to become a doctor, or a lawyer, or a professional person, you had to matriculate, and then go on to university. All of those things are available, but the assessment of what you want to be at the age that you have to take that decision is very difficult. You show me any kid at 10, 12, 14 or 16 that knows the direction that they want to go. It's a tough call, and in many cases it's led by what their parents do. The parents have such a huge influence In Australia, there are three things that are consistent from parents to their children. One is who they barrack for in the football. Two is their religion. And the third one is their politics, labour or liberal. Now, if mum or dad is normally the leader of the house, whatever he does will follow the pattern that goes on to the children in at least nine out of ten cases. Yeah,
0: got it. What are you looking forward to? What have you got on the boil that's coming up that you're excited about?
1: Um, Watching my grandkids grow, watching um, my kids keep on developing, watching my first two great-grandchildren and looking forward to my 85th birthday. Fantastic.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for having a chat today and thank you for your remarkable contribution to this great nation. Been my pleasure, thank you. There you go, another chat with a pretty unique and impressive Aussie character. I think you'll agree. For more info about Lindsay and Lynn Fox, head to linfox.com. Plenty more stellar guests coming up, but until next week, live large. Blank Canvas is produced by Lee Rogers and me, Rin MacDonald, with audio support by Jason Murphy at Gas Inc and music by Rodrigo Bustos. This has been a Milovich production.